So if you've ever wondered how you can help preserve more land to recreate on and how to take care of that same land, you're going to find out in today's episode. I firmly believe that everyone that takes part in recreating on public lands needs to know about the work that goes into protecting them and the animals that live there as well. After I saw a video that our guest shared the other day, I invited him on the podcast to talk about the work he does with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. He's also going to discuss the challenges of wildlife habitat preservation and the important role that individuals can play in supporting some of these efforts. So stay tuned for a fascinating combo on hunting, wildlife, and conservation with the one and only Jaden Bales. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Jaden Bales. And this guy is a remarkable, well, actually, first of all, this is the first time I met him. But from what I know so far is he's a remarkable guy. He's, he wears many hats. He's a, he's a hunter. He's a passionate conservationist, skier, and, and an entrepreneur as well. And yeah, we our paths kind of cross path on social media. And so we've been talking ever since. And it just seems like a good, uh, outstanding guy to talk to. So he recently shared a video on Instagram that was very, that got me really thinking. It was very thought provoking. And he spent a lot of time, crafted this awesome message in the caption. And I kind of wanted to start off the podcast with him talking about what he wrote in that caption and kind of what that video was all about. I'll give it to you. I'll pass the football to you. Oh, thanks, man. That was really, uh, that was really kind introduction. And I've never actually put those, like, I guess identities together in a string before. And, uh, that's kind of interesting because I just kind of, you know, everyone wants to put themselves in a box usually because that's where you like build your community. But for me, I've, uh, for a long time, I, you know, will be like, ah, dabble in this, uh, dabble in that. And then Mm -hmm. over time you just build up like huh i guess there are a handful of things i'm interested in so um that was really interesting hearing hearing that from you and i appreciate the kind introduction i uh i'm really passionate about a lot of stuff and uh there are a few things that i go into that i just like i i will i will learn it top to bottom it's kind of that like don't do anything you know half-ass and uh it, there are some drawbacks to doing that, but you know, in, in regards to wildlife hunting and, and how I recreate outdoors, I've definitely gone in wholeheartedly. So, um, yeah, yeah that, that <laughs> honestly, that, uh, post you talked about the other day, the, the background on that is I was driving, mm-hmm. trying to drive to Northeast Oregon to go visit family. That's where I'm from originally. And, uh, it just has not, the snow globe has not shut off in Southeast or Southwest Wyoming let alone central Wyoming, kind of where my house is. And, um, I couldn't, I basically pulled the plug on driving the 12 hours to get home from Wyoming, uh, to see my mom and brother and and some other family because it was snowing so hard, but those critters, like, I I mean, my driving to Eastern Oregon to see family is pretty minor as far of an inconvenience as it has been for those critters that are trying to make a living down there. And especially, um, the Bear Lake area, which includes Idaho and Utah, and then over to Cokeville and Kemmer, um, all that stuff is, has had a really harsh winter um, as far as, especially for deer and pronghorn. Um, and for the hunting crowd, like it has people kind of up in arms about like what we should be doing to, um, to help these populations. Because, you know, we look at this and like no one wants to see these critters suffering from malnutrition, from not getting enough food in their mouths. Um, and so we were like, ah, what can we do? Like, you know, and everyone's like, trying to come up with something like frantically 
Um, and oftentimes the, the solutions sometimes aren't like the best for the long term. Um, so it basically, you know, sparked, I drove through that part of the world and it sparked this like thought process as I'm driving. I don't know if you take notes while you're driving very often, but it's like one of the best places for me to think. And I like talked to texted kind of this post that I ended up putting up. Um, and when I turned around, I went back going back home and I passed these two, uh, dead pronghorn next to the road. Um, and they'd been hit by vehicles and it's actually a place that we had done some work on the fencing there to make it easier for them to get through, um, for my day job. Um, but, uh, I pulled over, took a video and I was like, okay, like this is the reality of what we're seeing here. Our human impact, like we have a major impact on the wildlife populations, right? But our human impact can be, um, worked on. We can, we can do some things with it. And I wrote down like three quick things. And that was one, support wildlife crossings, two, find habitat projects to do, and three, support officials who want to make a positive change. Um, and so those three things are kind of, it's funny, like I wrote those because that was in the front of my mind. It's also, those are the three things that I am tied in with doing um, for my day job at the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. So um, yeah. And then my buddy Braxton, uh, he lives in that local area and he said, four, educate yourselves, people. And so I feel like uh, <laughs> you must have must have read Braxton's and, and you asked me to hop on here because I realized after the fact, like these are these are new things for a lot of folks. So just educating yourself on what can be done, I think is a is a huge step one. Wow. But first of all, dude, super articulate. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for explaining that so dang well. I'm glad I'm glad I didn't really talk about it in my intro because I would have butchered that. That thing so bad. But that was an amazing, amazing recap of that. So what you're saying is, so basically you were, you were taking this drive and uh, as you were going, you saw these dead animals on the side of the road and you're like, what can we be doing better? Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're already doing some of these things. How can we get more and how can we get more people involved with this stuff? And, and one of the things you touched on was like fences and things like that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about the detriment of fences, especially to animals like pronghorns and things like that? Yeah. And I just want to like take a, a slight step back as well. Like one of the number one things that I struggle with is sometimes like I forget that these are, these, these are new concepts to folks um, because I was raised in a family that this was kind of, it was front of mind. Um, my grandpa used to take us to the ducks unlimited banquets when I was a little kid and we would go because he was, um, donating grass seed. And, and also I think he was donating some selling some regardless, he was tied into these conservation projects, um, for wetland areas and wetland restoration. So this is like, this is stuff that's been going on for a long, long time. And I think it just sometimes takes driving by a dead pronghorn or a dead deer or dead elk or whatever, like to really jog your memory of like, Oh yeah, like we're having an impact here and, and maybe we can do something. Um, okay. so one of those things, and, and in this local area that I was driving, it's on highway 28, it's near Farson, Wyoming, which, um, has some, has a great little mercantile if you need some, some ice cream in the summer, but that's about it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the fencing along the highways can sometimes trap pronghorn like in between the right-of-ways, right? So they'll like be stuck and just kind of like ping-ponging back and forth across the road before they can get themselves out. Pronghorn, generally speaking, do not jump over fences. They can sometimes, but they like to crawl under. 
So if you have, let's say, a really low bottom wire and they can't crawl under that, that's not good. Um, if you have a woven wire fence, which you'll see for like sheep operations mostly, like they can't get through that. Um, and so, you know, the fencing piece um, ha is, is really important because it increases the amount of critters are would get hit, you know, because they get stuck in the right of way. Um, and in that particular place, we actually just did a, a project in 2020 where we, um, there's a smooth bottom wire, which is good for wildlife, uh, good for pronghorn to crawl under. And we did this project where we created these little clips so that in the time of year when the cattle aren't needing to be kept off the road, um, you can raise that bottom fence up. And so when you have snow on the ground, those pronghorn can crawl underneath the fence easier. Um, wow. So that's just like one, that's just like one kind of conversion, one way to make a fence like, you know, pronghorn friendly, um, at least in this part of Wyoming. Okay. So, and that, and you brought up a, something about like the, when the cows are there and stuff like that, because obviously the fences are needed to, from my understanding, to keep the ranchers stock in, mm -hmm. like in a, in a certain area. So how are they receptive to you helping out doing this type of stuff? Or is there a lot of clashes between those things? It's really cool to see how ranching like is really supportive of this wildlife friendly fencing because, and this is like the, the brass tacks of it is like they get help maintaining fences or replacing fences that are dilapidated by having like these conservation groups or nonprofit organizations or game and fish or whatever, come out and make these repairs or these wildlife friendly changes. Um, when I was a kid, so I, I grew up on a farm and a ranch and um, <laughs> one uh, summer, I was my junior summer, we put in this dividing fence in one of our pastures so that we can just kind of like partition the the uh, uh, cows out of one portion of it and then that september some bull elk got in there and they got tangled in this fence and these two bull elk you know you're just we found them after the fact but we basically pieced together they were fighting they were you know locking antlers and then they got like they ran into this fence one of the fence like one of the barbed wire fencing um wrapped around one of the bull's necks and while they were tangled up and he died and then it looked like the other one either had to have broken his neck or just otherwise you know died of some other injury and so these two bulls with the barbed wire were dead in the middle of our cow pasture and we had just built that fence in july before and so wow. i had like me and my, you know, the other coworkers on the farm had just put that fence in and we're like, oh man, that was, you know, we were thinking of it at the time from the operational perspective, it was freaking expensive. It's labor intensive and it's a whole, like you have to go back and redo it, even if you had the resources to redo it. Um, so from the producer's perspective, man, it is a really good deal to have these um, type of fence modification, wildlife friendly fencing like projects, as long as it fits with, you know, their way of animal husbandry. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I bet when you saw that, you're like, wait, did we make the right decision with this or what? Yeah. <laughs> but you felt kind of bad for that, but dang it, dude, that's, that's something that you, that is like a once in a lifetime. Although I bet that happens quite a bit around the country though. The people just don't see it. Yeah, absolutely, man. And the other thing you'll see, um, we're trying to get, and this is kind of part of what I do with the communications aspect of my job is um, trying to share those photos when we can find them of like, look, this is the impact um, that these things can have. Uh, I mean, just a couple of years ago, I actually watched a pronghorn. Um, I was prong with my bow and I watched a pronghorn get tangled up in a fence. 
as he was like kind of he was just running from the truck as i'm driving on two track and he got tangled in a fence and i watched it all happen and i was like oh that's not good i got out and he started freak i was gonna like try to untangle his foot and he freaked out enough to he got his foot free but it was like when you witness it it makes a huge um impact on what you think or see like on the landscape yeah it's like when you see it, it becomes a lot more tangible, a lot more real type of thing. So, so that that's a good segue into what you do with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, correct? Yeah, that, that's that. Okay, so you do so you do communications there. What what are what is the Wyoming Wildlife Federation like? What's their mission? What are, what and what are their goals for preserving wildlife habitat? So the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. Um, has been around since 1937. So it's been, it's been doing this a while. It's kind of like a offshoot of other wildlife federations. Um, mm -hmm. It's technically an affiliate, but it's not, uh, we don't run on the same budget. Excuse me, regardless. So the mission of the federation is to conserve um, Wyoming's wildlife habitat and outdoor opportunities. And we kind of do that through like three different buckets. It's these habitat projects, advocacy, and education. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have different different members of the staff work under each of those buckets and uh and then my role is to kind of communicate it and then you know fundraise and have a membership that supports the the work on the ground as well awesome awesome so and one of the big things you mentioned was education is so are you doing are you doing some of that work type of thing where you're or how would that look yeah, I do. I mean, one of the things I'll do is kind of almost report on what I'm seeing or what is happening um, and then publish it, you know, to our followers on social media and email and send it out in press releases. But a really big piece of the education, like like the main part of education is um, we're doing a lot of youth education through our program we call Class Outside. So there's a whole, you know, a couple hundred kids a year and are going through these different kids camps in the summer, but also... Um, our education director, Andrea, she creates like these educational um, curricula that she's giving to different schools in Wyoming so that like while whale migration is really interesting, um, they can be learning about mule deer migration that is taking place in their backyard at the same time. Um, yes. And so those types of thing is like you look at again, you look at like all of the problems that are happening today. And you want to like have quick fixes, but I think, you know, when you, when you work from the ground up, it's where you have like real long-term solutions yeah. that stick. Um, so yeah. that's kind of the whole approach of WWF. I love it. I love it. So they're, they're getting in early. They're getting yeah. into the kids education early and, and affecting or ha educating them on things that they might even be able to directly affect, especially with like voting uh, the right people into office and things like that, that are going to be in support of this type of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's not ever, I mean, it's, it's, you know, um, as far as voting is concerned, there's one party that dominates Wyoming. Right. So it's not like, like what we're talking about here, isn't like a party line type of like influence on like who, who your elected officials are. It's just like, doesn't matter what they have as a letter in front of their, their name. Like, we want to make sure that they know that the citizens, you know, care about these things and that they want to prioritize their conservation and like making sure that they're around, not just for this generation, but all the ones to come after us. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say are the biggest challenges, maybe one or two of the mm -hmm. biggest challenges that the Federation is 
is going through right now. I know one big thing is, I don't know if this is in why I think it is, but like sage grouse, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I know there's stuff like the wildlife crossings and corridors and things. Mm -hmm. Are some of those on the list or what would be like the top two? Yeah, the top two, um, honestly, like, and and it's not super sexy, but the number one thing that we are kind of gearing up for are making an impact on public land resource management plans. So if folks didn't know if it's if it's a national forest or if it's bureau of land management land um, there is a resource management plan that determines what you can and cannot do out there and a huge thing and, and then these resource management plans will like determine what happens out there for like 20 years so what the federation is really active in is making sure that when those resource management plans come up they will be done they will you know the next round of of prescriptions for that land is wildlife friendly and is wildlife focused um the same thing is also the case with um you know making that wildlife focus in regards to like the bills and the legislative sessions that come up so underneath these things like there are sage grouse there are mule deer there are you know what can we do with the habitat on the ground there's there's minor um uh, they're not really minor, but there's like different subcategories under each of these um, umbrella topics that we work on. So right now the resource, the Rock Springs Resource Management Plan is supposed to be coming out this year. Um, we've said mm. that for a few years now. Um, and it manages three points. It would manage 3.6 million acres, which is larger than Connecticut um, in mm. Southeast Wyoming or Southwest Wyoming. So like these are like large scale um big pieces of land um that make them an impact for wildlife and how we recreate on on these lands yeah so and it's not only just wildlife but this is for the backpackers that are recreating on it the hikers Mm -hmm. skiers whatever and so it sounds like with this plan you guys are developing something that is going to be for the next 10 to 20 years type of thing so where they have to like you almost have to kind of predict the future where things are going as well in that type of plan or how how does that actually work like because that that sounds super difficult to me it's like what are we going to anticipate for challenges coming up mm-hmm. and and how do we see things going in a decade you know it's like it's super tough and that's and that's why we need to be involved right like because you know if you decide you know in this 20 year block of time well we have plenty of open space like we can we can throw in a couple more um (laughs) this is something we're really interested in right now if you're like we have plenty of open space in this part of the world let's throw down some windmills and some solar uh fields and then in 20 years down the road development has occurred drastically you know even on public and private land then you realize you might have messed up because you know you took the habitat that was available for these wildlife and for us to recreate and then turned it into something that those are not options for. Yeah. So yeah, it's really tough, and I think, it, but it's really important to to be involved and like to pay attention to what's happening. Um, you know, the we call you know you can call them renewable energy is something that we're paying close attention to. Um, just like we've always paid really close attention to how oil and gas operations are being developed as well. Mm. Um, same with road, you know, road development, you know, UTV, ATV use, like those kinds of things. Again, like you, you pointed out, it's, it's tough work, but it's important work because it has a long lasting impact. Would you say those are more of the, 
are the biggest destructors of habitat. The things that three things that you just listed off, like kind of roads, oil, gas, that type of stuff. Man, um, I don't know, you know, like if you were to categorize them by priority as like what makes the biggest impact, I mean, um, one of the things that also makes a huge impact on habitat are invasive species. And like, we don't have mm. a whole, whole lot of like cheatgrass and we don't have any Ventnata medusa head down here, but you look at like big landscapes uh, of Bureau of Land Management land in Nevada and Eastern Oregon and Utah and Southern Good Idaho. Thing. Yeah, it is just Oregon. Yeah, has has that cheatgrass all over it now. Yeah, yeah, and and that's a huge like, man, that really alters the habitat and the landscape from where it used to be. Um, so I mean, <laughs> I say that, and you know, right now the Bureau of Land Management doesn't have like this new um, chemical approved to, for use on public lands yet, but we're hoping that they can get it used um, or usable um, because we need to be doing something about that, you know? And, um, so that's where like, again, the long-term impact and like making long-term decisions is so important. It's tough though. <laughs> Dude, you really have to predict the future and where things are going. All of a sudden you see another invasive species in two years. That's rocking this environment somewhere, but you already planned on doing X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So how do you pivot from that? Or how do you anticipate that? Wow. That's a very challenging, very challenging thing. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm interested in, in particular, is is the wildlife crossings. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the proclivity of animals to migrate and then how wildlife crossings would help them do that? Yeah. So especially in in these mountainous states where you have summer range that is way up in the mountains and then you have quote unquote winter range down in the bottoms of the valleys, these animals have to move across the landscape so that they can survive year to year. And especially in the, in the fall, late fall, and then the spring when green up starts, um, these animals are making these big migrations, right? And whenever they're crossing the landscape like that on these big long treks, they're going to be crossing roadways. Um, and whenever they're crossing roadways, they're getting hit. One of the really cool things is like, there are some wildlife crossings though, that are almost hundred percent effective at reducing collisions. So in Wyoming, you know, we, there's a statistic that's a couple years old now, but like we hit 6,000 animals a year on the road. That's probably quite underreported. You know, it's like, yeah, eh, it's a pretty soft, like <laughs> that's a pretty yeah. soft number, but when you put in these wildlife crossings, you can really reduce that. And you'll see them if you drive from Pinedale to, um, Jackson right now, there's an overpass mm -hmm. there. Um, ah, that is, a, okay. that's a wildlife crossing. That's super effective. Um, and we're, we, I, I should say, I'm not working on it, but, um, you know, one of the big projects that they're putting in now is outside of Kemmer kind of in that country that I was just telling you was like really hit by snow bad this year. Um, so we're working on funding that one. You know, it'd be really nice to get one on on I-80. Um, if anyone's driven on I-80 through Wyoming, there's elk and pronghorn scattered all up and down that thing because the winter's been so rough. So, um, like I said, those those overpasses are really iconic. They look awesome and like you can feel like you're doing really good. But sometimes just really good um, fence modifications and um, mm. in particular, like good signage and just getting people to slow down at night. Like those, those kinds of things are a good first step for wildlife crossings too, because you can't just put a 
a freaking overpass over the entire roadway system. So, um, yeah, yeah, there's some minor uh, wildlife crossings uh, structures and projects you can do to to help improve it too. Yeah, they are really cool. Like every whenever I think of yeah, like those wildlife crossings, I'm thinking of some giant overpass that I see all these animals are just taking basically like a bridge over the highway, yep. which I think is so cool. But you gotta think that's pretty expensive to construct. And yeah. so, like you're saying, like, hey, maybe there's some ways that we can also do this too, opening up some fences or whatever, things like that. But yeah, I I do really think those are cool. <laughs> Yeah, they've got one that's proposed that uh, would be between, I don't know if anyone, if you've driven I-80, you'll, you'll know this stretch because it's always the worst stretch of road, but it's between Rollins and Laramie um, called Halleck Ridge. And like the proposed, you know, to build this overpass over both lanes of traffic or both, you know, sets of traffic would be, mm -hmm. I think it was 36 million was the last projection. Yeah. You know, as when we're when we've got inflation, you know, running at seven yeah. percent a clip, you know, per year, like that is just mm -hmm. gonna keep increasing the more that we put these projects off. So yeah. um yeah, there's some I mean, they're super expensive, but gosh, they freaking work. And um that's pretty cool. Awesome, awesome. So how would someone so say someone's interested in getting involved with the federation? what would they do for that do they just go to the website can they donate is there projects that they can help out on I'm, I'm guessing there might be a lot of volunteer things that they could do i think i've actually seen you do a lot of that stuff as well yeah for sure and, and i'm kind of cheating because i'm i work work so he's getting paid everyone but um yeah yeah so we do we have like a there's a membership so if you want to support it monetarily become a member um, we've got like a spring fun drive that's going on. And if you become a member, you can be entered to win a couple things. So that's pretty cool. And that's just on their website. But if like donation or, you know, the monetary like value support isn't there for you. Yeah. Just coming out and supporting some of these habitat projects or, or being involved in some of the advocacy stuff we do is really important. Um, and you would know about that stuff by just following on social media or signing up for emails. Um, and, and like, it sucks because our inboxes are so full of junk these days that sometimes it's hard to, to catch all the emails or catch all the stuff that's coming through on social media. Um, but it's important if you can, if you value this stuff and prioritize it, um, setting aside some tools to either notify, notify you when people who you want to be watching their stuff post posts or, you know, it's somehow making sure that the email doesn't go into the junk is really important. I think that's where people like oftentimes... Um, you know, they're like, ah, how can I get involved? And then you tell them and they're like, ah, but I don't want to do that. And you're like, come on, <laughs> this yeah, is yeah. the tools we have to work with today. So, um, yeah, that's a pretty good overview. Awesome. So you can donate financially or you can donate or, and, or you can donate with some hard work as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Awesome. It sounds like this is like a very fulfilling job for you. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, Certainly, I'm not going to get rich working in conservation nonprofit work. But um, like you said, it's super fulfilling. And um, another enjoyable piece of it is, is that I get to work on something that I'm super passionate about and like am engaged in, you know, from a hunting and angling perspective, perspective, especially. It's like this is my hobbies, right? Like this is the stuff my nine to five works on. And then I get to go out on the weekends and like, you know, reap, reap the rewards or, you mm -hmm. know, partake in it. So it's really enjoyable that way. 
Yeah, it's almost like you have a direct correlation to what you're seeing on the landscape and you can directly almost in a way influence some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other important that like one of the more fulfilling pieces of it is getting like friends involved too. Um, mm -hmm. And just like bringing in the people who also care about that. Um, mm -hmm. we're, we're doing a lot of this right now. Like, you know, again, going back to kind of the beginning of our conversation, people are like, understandably, there's like a lot of unrest about like, wow, what are we going to do? Yada, yada. And so it's really fun to be able to hit up your hunting buddies and be like, hey, we got this project come out on June June 10th and 11th. And like, we'll go do this thing um, because it makes an impact. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Dude, crushed it. Okay. If I was, so let's say I'm listening to this and I'm skeptical, Jaden. I, I, I'm a, I'm a backpacker. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiast and mm -hmm. I love, I love spending time in, out, in the outdoors, but I, sometimes I look at hunters and I'm just like, well, they just want to, kill animals mm -hmm. so uh, it's not adding up to me that Jaden is a conservationist as well he he it seems like from this conversation he really cares about animals and their habitat and the future of that type of stuff what's what's like what it, how would you respond to that i already know i already know the answer as being a hunter myself not a very good mm -hmm. one but it is interesting to me because i sometimes i find it hard to explain and I know Stephen Ranella said it one time. He's like, I think he he told a, a, a anti hunter once, which he said something about. I think I love the the like the idea of the animal more than uh -huh. you just like the one animal, right? Yeah. So that's almost like what conservation is to me. So how how would you explain that type of stuff or articulate that? Um. First of all, I'm having, I actually have this, like, I'll tell you in just a couple seconds, I have this giant, like, article that I'm writing. It's 1,200 words right now that mm. is trying to educate hunters that you do not need to shut down a hunting season when <laughs> a hard winter comes. Because hunters are the first people that I know who say, we need to end this hunting until the population rebounds or whatever, because they are just so concerned about the overall well-being, like you said, of the idea of the population. Um, unfortunately, that's not actually backed by science because for the most part, hunting is taking the surplus out of populations. So even when a population is down, the hunting of, in particular, like the males of a species is all a surplus that is possible um, while still make, growing a population or like not impacting where the population trends are going. So it's been really interesting. Like I said, it's been, it's hard to even articulate how frustrating it is when hunters are the ones who want to end hunting for a non-biological reason, <laughs> but because they just care so deeply about the, the populations that they're hunting and that they get to pursue. Um, so I don't know if, if you have a different way to re, you know, reframe your question, but that was just like what has really it's been apparent to me this year, especially when we're looking at a couple feet of snow outside the, the house in April, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, for the most part, every hunter that, that I, you know, that is engaged and that is paying attention, like, um, really is, is concerned about like the long-term health of these populations. Um, and like you said, 
I know a lot of more like the wildlife watching crowd or the folks who like enjoy having the deer at their feeder in their yard, like don't understand the impact um, of the entire population and are more concerned with that individual. Yeah. Just, just the deer that they're watching in front of them and they're not doing so much to help out the further future of that, of that species, which is kind of what hunters are, a lot of them are doing. I mean, most, most of the hunters that I know are donating to BHA, backcountry uh, hunters and anglers, stuff like that, or they are doing some type of work or conservation work on, yeah, like fences, wildlife, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting too, like in, in a lot of cases, like hunting can be a super vital wildlife management tool, right? So in a lot of places where elk or let's say whitetail are over their population carrying capacity, we say that like as over objective when a wildlife management um, agency has determined like, hey, here's like cap where we need to keep these animals at. And then they bring in hunters to go kind of like keep them down. So that's better for the wild, the wildlife on the landscape. Like they're not going to eat themselves out of house and home and it's better for the habitat. I mean, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's one of the ways that we can make sure that we have like these thriving brush communities and like healthy grasslands and stuff like that is just by making sure that we don't have an overpopulation. Now, when we're talking about like mule deer and pronghorn, that's not as often the case as it is for whitetail and for, um, mm -hmm and for elk and in some cases and for predators, you know? Yeah. So, so hunting is a tool to keep those, the animals basically in check. So mm -hmm. they're not, so there's enough food to go around for everyone. There's not some, uh, dying of hunger, stuff like that. And then it also protects the habitat because there could be like an overgrazing issue, stuff like that. You, you mentioned elk have a proclivity of uh, reproducing. Yeah. In, in, effectively essentially yeah. but mule deer and pronghorn don't what what is behind that is it because they're mostly like these prairie dwelling animals i mean so, you can see some mule deer up high but like what what is up with that they're just a little more fragile for whatever reason i think all all of these conversations can oftentimes if you're like in one of these questions this is just a blanket statement here so just take it with a grain of salt. But if you're in one of these questions, like why is this happening? Step one is to kind of look at the habitat and how they utilize it. Um, for instance, elk have a lot more adaptable digestive system. They can live in the middle of the desert and they can live at the top of the mountain. And they're, they're really hard to kill as far as like winters do not knock their populations back. Um, hmm. And for the most part, they're pretty effective at evading predators and what you see with pronghorn and with mule deer is that you know these big winter storms knock back their population quite a bit they are really impacted by the inability to get from one side of the freeway to the other to migrate away from into better habitat um and on top of that like we have a lot of development that is out in the middle of these places where mule deer and pronghorn are like interested in staying away from the development and for the most part elk are too but they just are much more adaptable we've got an elk herd outside of lander that literally like you can stand in the city limits and see this elk herd in a hay field like right outside of town just because they've like well we're not getting any hunting pressure here there's very low predator numbers down here and like they just live in the subdivision you're like wow i know colorado has some of this too especially um, yeah. you know, there's some open space areas like on the edge of town that they're having elk problems with. Um, 
So yeah, I think that you know it goes back to habitat and our and our development and our impact on where they can be. Awesome, dude. Well, oh, so this is going to be so educational for people to listen to. I love Howard. I can see why you're the commu- in communications for <laughs> <laughs> the Wyoming the Federation. There, wow. And I really I wanted to qu- quickly switch gears here to the hunting side of it, but you have seemed to actually combine hunting also with entrepreneurship as well, mm-hmm. because as I was kind of going through re- doing some research, research and stuff like that, you own your own company called hunt West. Well, it's on huntwest.net. Mm-hmm. And if I understand that correctly, you help people put hunt plans together, which I think is absolutely genius, especially as me, I, it's random because I I didn't know Jaden owned this business, but a couple of weeks ago, as I was going to be, I'm going to be moving to Wyoming. I asked him randomly. I'm like, hey, like, what? Well, you need a freaking, you need to be a rocket scientist to understand some of this stuff when you go state to state, like draws and this and that in general and what all this stuff. So I think this is absolutely genius. So how did you come up with this idea, and what kind of motivated you to start it? So a large part of what I'm realizing is that. Even if you've been hunting for a long time, folks don't understand how we control and divvy up like the hunting opportunities that are available. It's just really complex because each state manages this ability to like give everyone the opportunity to go hunting while also being cognizant of like what they're wanting to do with the wildlife populations. And um, there's a lot of social and political like uh, impacts to how we go hunting in addition to like the, the biological side. Right. So it's confusing is basically like where every hunter, not just new ones ends up landing is like, gosh, I have a hard time understanding this. Um, so we got like, you know, part of my growth as a hunter has been an interest in going to different States. And I realized, wow, that's really difficult to understand. And then I realized also working with Wyoming Wildlife Federation, like people would be calling the office asking like, Hey, where should I apply for pronghorn? Like, what can I get for a deer tag? And, um, it's just clear, like this is, uh, this is difficult. And so, um, I've always had the entrepreneur, uh, the entrepreneur bug. Um, it's what I went to school for in college. Um, so it's just been something I've been interested in. And so when I saw that need, I was like, well, I think we can help some people out and, um, and, uh, you know, have a little bit of side income on the, at the same time, like I said earlier, I'm not getting rich on, uh, on a nonprofit communications job. So, uh, I'm sure not getting rich on hunt West yet either, but, um, <laughs> it is another kind of opportunity to help people like, you know, solve a problem that they have. And, and also, you know, it's, it's fun for me. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, yeah, being, yeah, working with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, you're actually probably getting some of these calls or questions and stuff like that. And so you kind of identified these pain points. Mm-hmm. And you're like, there's enough people asking this question that there's got to be enough people that would be willing to get help or mm-hmm. a mentor with this, especially somebody that actually lives in the state and understands it. Because it, it, it's almost like a, it's a, it's learning like a different language. Yeah. Essentially. And like I said, as me now moving to be now, well, I think I have to wait a year to become a resident. Yes. Which sucks. I know. Well, I think 12 Oregon months was, from the day you move. Ah, uh, yeah. I was so disappointed. I thought it was going to be six months. I think that was what Oregon was, which is mm-hmm. like the only liberal thing that Oregon has. And it's hunting, hunting. 
<laughs> and, three bear, and three bear tags. <laughs> yeah, randomly, <laughs> right? Oregon. But anyway, yeah, so I was like a little bit bummed by that. But can you – I would love for you to kind of walk through the process of putting together like a hunt plan for someone and like what factors you would consider when you create a plan for them. Because it's, it's, I'm assuming it would have to be customized to what they obviously want to hunt what weapon they're using, their abilities, their skill level, where they're going. How would that work? So uh, just one minor step back because we tied these two things in together. I'm not taking people calling the WWF office and and selling them on Hunt West the same time. <laughs> just to, yeah, no. <laughs> I just like the way that He's that was dipping. structured. I was like, yeah. no, no, I'm not double dipping. It was just like, we actually, I am helping our WWF members. If they're a member of the Federation, I'll help people out. Like as part of my nine to five job, just mm -hmm. to, just to clarify that the separation of church and state here. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the first thing that I do when I uh, want to help somebody out is I ask them just a whole litany of questions because at the end of the day, you can hunt in from the top of the mountain to the prairie. You can decide to backpack in, or you can decide to hunt relatively close to the truck. You can hunt private land. You can hunt public land. You can do all sorts of, ex you can create your own like experience you want. And I think that oftentimes people forget like, that is a huge piece of this hunting thing. It's not just, and, and, and especially for new folks, it's like kind of an interesting dichotomy. It's like, it's not just a meat gathering operation. This is like people hunt for a variety of different reasons. You want specific experiences. Like, yes, I do want to eat a mule deer that I get, but this year I'm really excited to try to get one in the high country of, because that's going to be an adventure. Um, so I think step one is identifying like what someone really wants out of the experience. And then you can figure out like, you know, the weapon type, if they, you know, have the opportunity, if they're starting from scratch, you know, that's going to be an important question to ask. Um, my significant other, Jess, um, she also works at the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, also very articulate on these topics, probably more than me. Um, she started hunting with a bow, right? Like that was just interesting to her. So, um, this is a, all a long answer to saying like step one is just asking questions, like identifying what someone wants out of a hunt before you create a hunt plan, because it's going to be so vastly different from person to person. So you actually listen to what people are saying instead of forcing maybe an agenda onto them, which would be the best thing here. Here's the most, here's the best chance of success that you have, blah, 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 blah. You're actually kind of asking them following up and with whatever they're given to you. Yeah, absolutely. Most people will look and be like, oh man, I just, I just want to go hunting in Wyoming. But as a non-resident, it takes like four or five years to get an, an elk tag. And, um, that's only the case if you're interested specifically in the general tag that is, you know, has its own regulations around it. There's a ton of cow elk hunting opportunity that one could do mm -hmm. this year. So mm -hmm. it, again, it's just like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, kind of dig in a little bit and get to know someone before you can just start saying like, Oh, this is the solution for you. You know? Yeah. Right. Exactly. It, one of the things too, I saw on your site was I loved this. You gave, you gave almost like three strategies. You, you gave three, three or four different stories of these harvests that you had. Mm -hmm. Then you gave three 
one of the things you said was like you people just kind of go out there this is me by the way this is 100 okay. me when i hunt i'm gonna pull up you these these specific examples so that i can use you know what them. i'm talking about right yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously, you yeah. Wrote them. but yes yeah, so dude i am totally one of them that goes out there hopes and prays that oh maybe i'll stumble on you know i think i have a strategy mm-hmm. but if i really think about it i don't know if i have that much of a strategy so you laid out these three, four stories, and you gave out three strategies for each that you were focusing on. Can you talk about the importance of those strategies? And yeah, if you want to list out some of those examples, that'd be great too. Yeah. So for someone who's getting new, getting into hunting or even just wanting to hone in the skills, like I've tried to make some buckets of different approaches to going hunting that allow people to kind of just like run a tactic or run a game plan using that like bucket. One is spot and stock. That's like using usually optics to to find out where an animal's at and then you move in and like try to get it. The other would be ambush. You find out where an animal's moving through frequently and you wait there until the animal comes to you. And then there's like, you know, a third thing is you can, uh, we used to call it drives, but you can also, it, can also be called still hunting where you like move through an area and try to find the animal. You don't know where it's at, but you know, it's in this habitat. And so you're just kind of like moving through to find it. Um, (laughs) Different people have different like uh, strengths Mm -hmm. in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. If you can't, um, a good example is if you're, if you can't sit still, the ambush version is not for you. (laughs) You should, you should not be sitting in a tree stand or sitting over a water hole or something. Um, whereas, you know, if you don't have great optics, for example, you probably shouldn't be looking for deer from three miles out. Like that's not a good approach or a good use of your, um, your tools you have in your, in your toolbox. So yeah, those are the kind of the three buckets. And then from there, you know, depending on the species, um, you can kind of also break up the terrain into different, different categories as well to help you kind of hone in on what type of a hunt or what, um, kind of habitat you want to focus on. I love it. So it's an actual, so he's again, breaking it down by strengths. What do you want? What's the style of hunting? And then you kind of create a plan around that style. Yes. Love it. I love it. I love it. And, um, I had a a conversation with a friend of mine who's relatively new to Western hunting. And, you know, I tried to tell him like, so, you know, you, you can sit, uh, an elk wallow, an elk watering area, you know, where they kind of roll around in it you can sit one of those all day and like wait for one to come to you. You don't have to do what's popular on YouTube right now. And like, just run around bugling in this call all day. And he was like, huh, I never really like thought about that. And then like, same with deer hunting. Like right now it's really popular. You get on the biggest, tallest peak. And I love doing this strategy. You get on the biggest, tallest peak and you sit down with a spotting scope and you're, you're looking for the deer and then you find the deer and then you make a big stock to move in. Well, I first, I got my first two deer by doing a, a drive with my family. So like basically we were all just kind of like walking through this prime habitat and then a deer pops up and you get it. So, yeah. um, yeah, there's just like, it is not, um, hunting is not a monolith in a lot of ways, but especially in how you approach it. <laughs> monolith. Oh, I love that word. I don't even know what that word, that word means, but I, it might be the first time it's been on. Well, it definitely is the first time it's been on this podcast, but I love it. <laughs> awesome awesome well dude 
how do people catch up with you? Mm. I know, obviously, you got your website if you want to say that. Mm-hmm. And what is the best way to contact you? Probably Instagram, so, I would imagine. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. Well, it's it's I'm trying to not spend so much time on Instagram uh, and Facebook, uh, but um, I got on early enough that I just have my name. So it's at Jaden Bales on both the Graham and Facebook. But um, for conservation stuff at Wyoming Wildlife, for like the hunting like plans and hunting information, it'd be at Hunt West. Hunts West, it's plural. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can find me on any of those platforms. Um, but also you could just uh, go to the websites. Um, for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, it's uh, just wyomingwildlife.org. And then for Hunt West, it's uh, just huntwest.net. So those are, you'll find me in some way, shape, or form. I'm, I'm easy to find at least because I've got a unique enough name that it's um, it shows up pretty easily. Well, dude, you crushed this. You were super articulate. It was an honor having you on the on the podcast. Again, I can tell why you're in communications. That's very obvious to me. But I really appreciate you educating my audience. I think there's going to be a good crossover there. And yeah, man, I just I really appreciate you coming on.